Good morning. Thank you, Joe and Julie, for playing. And uh, it is a joy and a privilege to be able to stand before you this morning again to open the Word and to read and to study from it. Uh, thank God for the freedom we have to do that. There are many countries, even today, where people gather in fear. But we have this privilege, and it's not something we should ever be, take for granted, because little by little, those privileges are being eaten into, in the, even in our society. This past week, uh, as we have over the past 22 years or so, we all saw images of those large commercial jetliners flying into the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center. I remember before our kids were born, Joyce and I were able to go, and we, we were at the top of that tower. Uh, and this the view that you could see of all of New York. But you see those videos, and you see the first uh, plane going into one tower, and then the uh, second one, short while later, flying into the other tower. And then uh, those towers coming down. Uh, the second one coming down first, and uh, the south tower, I believe. And, uh, but as I've said before, and I'll say it again this morning, there's one video, video you don't see. What video is that? That's a video of people in that office building looking out from their windows and filming the plane coming directly into them. Well, for one thing, there were no camera phones in those days. The first Nokia camera phone came out, and I looked it up, it came out in 2002. But even if they had cameras, there was no time to take a video of that plane. One instant they look out the window, see that nose of the jetliner. The next instant they're all obliterated in a fireball. Even if they had recorded something, it would have been gone. I just say that to make this point. You know, there might have been some people in that office building who had heard the gospel and decided, yeah, maybe next week I'll make a decision about this. No warning. And they go into an eternity, a lost eternity. So this morning I would ask you, God forbid, if an airliner crashed into the chapel, do you know where you would be? Do you know where you would be? I trust for all, if not most of you, the answer is yes, I do. And then you saw those horrific images prior to the towers coming down of people jumping out of the buildings and uh, just. Uh, and then every year now, for the last 22 years, you have family and friends who read the names of all 2,977 people who died in that tragedy and many more who died later from effects of that, working in the building and the firefighters and police and others who were helping out. Then for months and months we saw pictures of those foundations, the twisted, mangled concrete and steel foundations. Those foundations went into bedrock, hundreds of feet below the earth, and yet they were all destroyed in an instant when the towers came down. There is one foundation that will not be destroyed. 
In the book of Isaiah, chapter 28, verse 16, the prophet speaks of the Lord. See, I lay in Zion a cornerstone, a tested stone. The one who trusts in him will never be disappointed. But that doesn't mean that those foundations are not under attack. Satan is constantly attacking this foundation, and perhaps never more so than in our society and culture today. And so this title of this message is uh, Foundations, Our Foundations Under Attack and Our Responses. And I'll be using primarily two verses and then a few more passages of Scripture separately. The first verse comes from a Psalm of David in Psalm 11 and verse 3. Psalm 11, verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Or I would say if the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? And then the other verse is from Revelation chapter 3 and verse 2. It's one of the letters to the seven churches in Asia, the church at Sardis. It says, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. So before we look into that, uh, let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this time again. Lord, our society is hostile to you. And some of the foundations that we've taken for granted, perhaps, are under attack and being chipped away. And so we pray that as believers in you, that our foundation would be secure. Our confidence and our commitment to you would be secure in Christ. Help us to stand in a dark world that we live in as lights for you. We just ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. There was a question in an old movie. The question was this, how much dynamite do you need to blow up a dam? How much dynamite do you need to blow up a dam? And the answer was, it depends where you put it. It depends where you put it. The movie was a World War movie from, uh, called Force 10 from Navarron. It was a very young Harrison Ford and uh, Robert Shaw were the actors. It was a story of a bridge in Yugoslavia that uh, was the su chief supply line for the Germans, and they wanted to destroy that bridge. The Allies wanted to, and so... Rather than trying to, there was a very fortified bridge, and so rather than trying to do that, there was a dam that was upstream of that. And so the plan was to blow up the dam, and then the water would destroy the bridge. So they have all these adventures where this group of commanders goes through so much to get to that dam. And then they plant the dynamite, finally, and uh, then they come away from it, and then the demolition expert guy, he, uh, you know, now they don't use dynamite, but in those days they did. And he blows up. There's a loud noise, and nothing happens. And so the whole, the whole team's looking at this demolition expert and say, "What?" And he calm, very calmly lights his pipe and he says, "Patience. You got to have patience." And then shortly after that, some cracks appear in the in the wall of the dam, and water starts seeping through. The water seeps more, and the cracks get bigger. And ultimately, the dam collapses. I would suggest to you, we are at the point where the cracks are becoming big breaks in the wall in our society and in our culture that we live in. And so, 
If the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? What are the foundations? The foundations of God and His Word. You have it on your outline today. The foundations of family and society. And the foundation of morality and accountability. As John Glock said when he was here, life is hard and it's not going to get any easier. I'm not going to spend too much time on these foundations. We've over the last four months at the Sunday evening discussions, we've looked at some of how these foundations are being destroyed. We've looked at the outworkings of the issue of transgenderism. We've looked at the outworkings of diversity, equity, and inclusion and the way it's affecting our society. This coming uh, next Sunday evening, we'll be looking at the assault on our children and parental rights, which is really being uh, under attack today. So I hope, especially for you young families, I would urge you to be there. It's things that are going to affect you and your families. And perhaps the older ones, your grandkids, are going to be affected. So firstly, the foundation of God and His Word. You know, many of you, at least the older ones, grew up when this country was considered a country with Judeo-Christian foundations and principles. That has long since gone. We live in a post, it was post-Christian a while ago. Post-modern first, then post-Christian, it's post-truth. And it's not even post-truth. There's no such thing as truth. We talked about it last time at the discussion on the standpoint theory. Basically that truth can only be known from your own standpoint. That's the current theory. Your truth cannot be understood or appreciated by someone else. It's only good for you. That's the standpoint theory of truth. That's what happens today. A good example was this was a couple months ago of the just absolute ignorance of God and His Word uh, on the game show Jeopardy. Some of you perhaps watch it. Uh, where you answer the, the clue in, in the form of a question. And then uh, the, the final Jeopardy, where all three wager their winnings up to that point on the final question. The final question was this, Our Father, who art in heaven, blank be thy name. These are very smart people, people who answered all those questions from all different science and arts and literature and history not one of them knew the answer to that question. You would think that somewhere in their upbringing, whether in school or a school prayer, or prayer somewhere in church, in their family, or friends, whatever, that they would have heard the first line of the Lord's Prayer. They didn't know. They really didn't know. There was a lot of backlash on, on <laughs> social media after that about that. But I think that gives us a clue into where we are as a country and a society today. Uh, Ligonier Ministries, uh, R.C. Sproul started that, has this as the top five heresies among evangelicals, not general public, top five heresies among evangelicals. Let me quote them. First one, 56% of evangelicals believe that Jesus isn't the only way to God. They think that God perhaps accepts other ways too, and we are judgmental and bigoted to be saying there's only one way. And this is 56% of evangelicals. John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4 and verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other name except the name of Jesus. Totally against Scripture. And these are, quote, evangelicals attending churches regularly. The second heresy is 73% agree that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Is that biblical? Absolutely not. 
John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was not created by God. He was God. He is God. He always will be God. Third heresy, and that's from the 4th century, that's Arianism, that came up in the 4th century, that Jesus was being created by God. Thirdly, that Jesus is not God. 43% say that he was a great teacher, but not God. He was a great teacher, but not God. 43% even quote evangelicals. We just quoted John 1, one. Philippians 2 says, Who being in very nature, God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but humbled himself and took on himself the form of a servant. Fourth heresy, the Holy Spirit is not a personal being, but a force. You know, like the Star Wars kind of thing, may the force be with you. The Holy Spirit is not a personal being, but a force. That's also not biblical. And the fifth heresy is human beings are not really sinful by nature, are they? 57, 57% of evangelicals say agreed with that statement. That is secular humanism, basically. Man is basically good, and it's all these things that your restrictions that are put on you that cause you to, that you consider sin. Biblical? Absolutely not. Romans 3, verse 23, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jeremiah 17, The human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And millennia of history prove that. But these are heresies in the, quote, evangelical church in the USA, a survey taken a few years back. It's probably worse by now, the percentages. Then there are all kinds of other teachings. The prosperity theology, where... You know, God wants you to be happy and healthy and wealthy and wise. It's, it's very popular, both in parts of Africa and the African subcontinent and parts of South America, and even here in some circles in the U.S. Uh, John, John 16, verse 33 says, In this world you will have trouble. But then he goes on to say, But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Our future is secure, but God has not made any promise that we will always be wealthy and healthy and in this world now. In fact, Peter says in his epistles, don't count it strange that you are called to suffer in Christ's name. And then there are many more, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, but one other thing I'll just mention briefly here, and I'll bring it up later, is the idea of shame. In the last, within the last three years or so, within COVID, a couple of people uh, there's a book by a so-called Christian author, Nadia Bowles Weber, called Shameless. She suggests when Adam and Eve sinned and they were naked and they were ashamed, why did they? Why were they ashamed? Was it, it wasn't their guilt and the idea that they disobeyed God. No, the idea of shame, Satan had to have given them the idea of shame. Therefore, Shame is something that came from Satan. Therefore, we, do, we should ignore it completely, and anything that we do, we don't have to feel shame for. And she has a church in Colorado that uh, celebrates all forms of sexual uh, immorality, because you don't have to be ashamed, ashamed of it. Foundations of God and His Word being attacked and destroyed. But that happened right in the Garden of Eden. Did, did God really say? That was the first question. And that led to the downfall of humanity. But God had a plan, praise God. He was going to send one who could 
redeem us from that as we gather together this morning to remember him. You know, many many years back there was a commercial on uh, Christian radio. It was a it was a satirical kind of commercial. It was an ad for the new erasable Bible, and it, it was very well done. It was a, you know an ad for this this the new version called the new erasable Bible. It came with its own whiteout thing. When you got to a section of scripture that you didn't really like, you just erase it out, and then keep going on. That's what's happening. It's not just, uh, they want to erase all of Scripture, not just parts of it. So the foundations of God and His Word. Secondly, the foundation of family and society. Of family and society. In the Garden of Eden, God created man and woman in His image and gave them the command to be fruitful and multiply. And God created the family unit as the basic unit of society. And ever since then, Satan has been trying to break up that family, especially the quote, nuclear family, father, mother, and children. In the uh, Black Lives Matter manifesto that was initially published, it expressly stated the desire to destroy or get rid of the nuclear family. They've since, I think, modified it. Unfortunately, many government welfare programs, although perhaps well-intentioned to begin with, have resulted in incentives to break up the nuclear family. Almost 40% of families in the U.S. now are single-parent families, and many single-parents do a stellar job of bringing up their children. But that was not God's original pattern. Today, children are taught in early school, in elementary school, that there are different kinds of families. It could be a mother and father, and even those terms are now considered antiquated. You can't use those terms in some settings. Uh, two women, could be two men, could be bisexual, could be any other form. And uh, parental rights are under assault. They cannot supersede children's rights. We'll talk about this this coming Sunday. The state of California was suing a school district in California. The attorney general was suing the school district because the school district said that parents have to be notified if their children want to transition genders. So the state of California is suing the school district. Talk about an upside-down world that we live in. And there's many more bills still under consideration. The MSNBC host, Melissa Harris Perry, Perry, said this, We have to break through our private idea that kids belong to their parents or that kids belong to their families and recognize that kids belong to whole communities. Let me read that again. We have to break through our private idea that kids belong to their parents or kids belong to their families and recognize that kids belong to whole communities. And the implication out of that is that for kids to belong to whole communities, they have to be indoctrinated with certain core beliefs about the world in general and sexuality in particular. And that's also well underway today. The third foundation under attack is morality and accountability. Many years ago, it was almost 15, 20 years ago, when the rapper Ice-T was, somehow somebody had read him a list of seven deadly sins and he, he was shocked. Lust? That's a sin? That's normal. You know, the idea that it's wrong to steal something or that you will be accountable for it is also rapidly becoming a thing of the past. Again and again, in many cities today, you can see single folks or large groups of people, often teenagers, sometimes with masks, often just brazenly with their faces uncovered, going into stores, including high-end fashion designer stores, and just with garbage bags full and walking out with uh, loot, 
and nobody, you know, if, if the employee tries to stop them, they get into trouble. Nobody stops them. In uh, San Francisco, you can steal up to $950 worth of goods, and it's just a misdemeanor. And you can be, be uh, if, you're, if you ever get arrested, you can, you know, it'll be considered a misdemeanor, and you leave right away and can go back. There's no limit to the number of times you can do that. It's not just California. I mentioned this last time at us, and Joyce was at the Mason Lowe's in Cincinnati. Somebody walks in with a large one. They have those big carts, you know, the long ones. Two boxes of lawnmower, you know, poor lawnmowers in the boxes. Puts it on the cart, just brazenly walks out without paying. And this is in Mason, our suburb. And uh, the, the store clerk didn't know what to do. The store manager was trying to try to prevent them. They just walked out. Nobody paid for it. Morality and accountability. The foundations of God and His Word, a family and society of morality and accountability, are all being eroded and destroyed. What can the righteous do? Do we, uh, is it all doom and gloom? Do we despair? Do we run away and crawl into our holes? Uh, as the psalmist says in Psalm 11, verse 1, how can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? Can we run away? Do we become cynical and bitter? Do we resort to violence? What will we do? Two things I'd like to mention are confidence and our commitment, our confidence and our commitment. You know, someone has said, if all of these problems that are going on, it all, the answer is, it all depends how big our God is. If he's a small God, then we have a big problem. But if he's a big God, then all of these problems are small problems. That he is in control. And that's the first thing in our confidence. God's reality and his presence. God's reality and his presence. After David asks that question, if the foundations are destroyed or being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. That's David's way of saying, God is everywhere and he is sovereign over everything. I will admit, it doesn't always seem that way, does it? It doesn't seem that way. But it does not change the reality that he is in control and he is sovereign. He is God whose ways are far above our ways and a God to whom the whole human race will give account one day. Was God shocked by the transgender movement? Was God shocked by the murders that regularly take place in our big cities on weekends? Is God shocked by the weather events that happen, by the recent fires in Maui or the hurricane that came through Florida? The answer is no. Our God is a God who is aware of everything. He allows things to happen. He's never surprised. He's never asleep. He's never startled by evil. He's never unaware of things that happen. Dr. Lewis Johnson, who is a seminary professor, said this. He said, if you truly believe Genesis 1-1, if you truly believe Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, you won't have trouble with the rest of the Bible. You won't have trouble with the rest of the Bible. Many years ago at a Promise Keepers conference, evangelist E.B. Hill gave a message, a sermon, on two words. God is, God is, 
For over 45 minutes he spoke on those two words, God is. When Moses said, who shall I say sent me? God said, that's really the I am, the first person, whatever tense that is, I am, continuous tense. God is. He is sovereign. He is in control. He is always with us. You know, in the Isaiah chapter 6, it starts out in the year that King Uzziah died. That was a turning point. It might have seemed like things were going downhill. The king had died. What did Isaiah see? He says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and there was beings shouting, holy, holy, holy. Whether the king dies or society gets eroded, God is on his throne, high and lifted up. So the first source of our confidence, God is. God is. God is. And always will be. Secondly, God will judge. God will judge. Versus the second part of that verse is, uh, Eyelids test the sons of men, the Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. There's a verse in Isaiah, Isaiah 5, verse 20. It says this, because I thought it it just applies to our society today. And he's talking about judgment coming. Isaiah 5, verse 20 reads, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. That's exactly what the progressive society thinks today, or even progressive Christianity for that matter. Judgment is coming. Dr. Martin Luther King said this, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. In other words, saying that God will judge, but in his time. Now there's a there is an eternal difference between the righteous and the wicked. Now there's not one of us that is righteous because of anything that we've done. Our righteousness comes because God imputes it to us in Christ. Romans 3.23, I said earlier, there's no one righteous. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans goes on to say there's no one righteous, no, not one. But there is one who is the king of righteousness, who laid down his life for us. And when we trust Him as Savior, we are justified in God's sight. He imputes His righteousness to us, and we receive that. But those who reject the free gift of salvation will be judged for their sin, and it will be a terrible judgment. If we've trusted Jesus, we won't be judged for our sins. We'll be judged for our service to the Lord and our works for Him. But God is patient. Why is, you know, why are the wicked prospering? Why is nothing happening? God is patient. Second Peter 3 verse tells us God is patient, not willing that anyone should perish, but that all should come to a saving knowledge. And He is waiting. There is a day of judgment coming. All of these things that we see will be judged, but He is patient. A second source of confidence. Firstly, God is. Secondly, God will judge. Thirdly, our deliverance. Verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. I think it's the NLT that says the upright will see his face. The upright will see his face. How thankful I am. How thankful I am 
that this corrupt and decaying world is not my final destination. How thankful I am that it is not our final destination. Hallelujah. The songwriter writes, The glory shines before me. I shall not ling I will not linger here. David by faith could surmise that though the battle may be hot and we may be surrounded, God will win in the uh, in the end and we will see his face. That is the true position for all who love God and believe in his word. Richard Niehaus, who's the founder of one of the Christian magazines, First Things Magazine, was in Pennsylvania for a speaking engagement, and the person who picked him up and to take him to the event was kind of bemoaning the uh, state of affairs of American culture and society, kind of like what we're doing this morning. And Niehaus listened for a while, and then he said this, These may be bad times, but these are the only times that we have been given. These may be bad times, but these are the only times we have been given. Remember, hope is still a Christian virtue. Hope, and we have a living hope because we have it in Christ. In these dark times, we as believers have the opportunity and the responsibility to shine even brighter for Him. Let me say that again. In these dark times, we have the opportunity and the responsibility to shine even brighter for Him. Many years ago, when I think I was around nine years old when we came to Bombay from, I was born in the city of Madras, now called Chennai. When we came to Bombay, uh, I, did, I didn't know Hindi and the national language at the time because they don't teach it, that, at least they didn't used to teach it at that time in South India. But a family from the assembly came by and their children who were a little bit older than us, between myself and my sister who was just older than me, they were in between. And then the two of them, a boy and a girl, sang this song in Hindi. And, uh, I still remember the words of it because uh, I don't think it, it might have been in the hymn book, but it was more like a children's song. It wasn't, it really wasn't sung in the assembly. Uh, and I, I remember hearing it once or twice, but I still remember the words of it. And uh, I'm just going to share that first verse. It's not speaking in tongues, it's speaking in Hindi. <laughs> it's Nile Gaganme Chamke Thare, Dunyame Vaisehi Chamke Ham. What it says is like, like the stars in the deep blue sky, you and I as Christians need to shine brightly. And then it goes on to say, like the birds sing sweetly in the trees, so we need to be singing the praises of God. It goes on to say, like the flowers bring fragrance to a garden, you and I need to spread the fragrance of Christ. I couldn't remember all the words, so I googled it. Well, on YouTube there are multiple versions of it, of people singing that song. I just listened to it last Thursday. This is a beautiful song now. That's what we ask to be, salt and light, to be stars in the dark sky, to be the fragrance of Christ, to be singing His praises. When the foundations are being destroyed, our confidence comes from God is. Our confidence comes from God will judge. Our confidence comes from this is not our final home. I remember reading the story of a missionary couple that came back from Africa, they had lived there for decades and really hadn't seen much fruit. But actually, if you follow their story, the people who came after them saw all the fruit. But they came back after, in their 70s or late 70s. At that time, they came back by ship and just a husband and wife. And apparently, uh, Theodore Roosevelt was also on that ship. And when they got to the port, to the terminal, there was a big parade and, you know, confetti and streamers and everything welcoming the president back. And this couple got off the ship and nobody had come to see them. 
not no one from their mission organization, no family, no one. And the, the husband writes that he said, Lord, it would have been nice if someone had come to see us when we came home. And he said the Lord clearly spoke to him saying, my child, you are not home yet. You are not home yet. This is not our home. We have a homecoming. But while we're here, we are asked to be confident in Him. Our confidence is in our God. Secondly, our commitment. What can we do? What can we do? Owen Lutzer, who's the former pastor of Moody Church, and his wife were visiting with friends in Colorado. Their house in the back deck of the house overlooked the mountains. And the host's wife said, I like to sit here in my rocking chair every morning, enjoying the mountains, while rocking back and forth. And then she added, And when I'm done, I look at my phone, and it tells me I have walked three miles. I think, in some ways, that vignette reflects the way much of Christianity is today. Rocking back and forth in one place, enjoying the beauty of God from a distance, and thinking we'd be making great spiritual progress. It pains me to say that. The words spoken by Jesus to the church at Sardis are especially relevant to the culture we live in today. Revelation 3, the first part of, last part of verse 1 and verse 2 say this, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful, or wake up, and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die. For I have not found your work perfect before God. What concerned Jesus about this church, that they had failed to notice? Although it's not explicitly stated in the passage, the um, the ruins of Sardis, they found a church building of a, that third century church. Right next to it was a pagan temple dedicated to pagan sexuality and sexual pra- practices. The church evidently felt comfortable next to the, the temple, and we can surmise that they most likely succumbed to the surrounding culture. But as verse 4 in Revelation indicates, not all had been led astray. You know, so-called progressive Christians today believe that traditional Christians are fundamentalists, which just almost has a bad connotation today in today's circles, are judgmental, they're bigoted in not recognizing alternate lifestyles, that they're plagued with racial injustice and must get rid of all these negatives and be totally inclusive and welcoming. Yes, we have to be welcoming of all who come by. But we preach the Word of God. We're not apologetic about it. We preach the Word of God as it's given to us. We don't welcome everything that happens in society. This uh, last June was uh, Pride Month, if you hadn't noticed. A lot of churches had rainbow flags in there. We celebrate Pride Month. I believe this admonition to be watchful, to strengthen the things which remain, especially true for us today. Here are a few, I mean, there are many things we could talk about, but here are a few. One is, firstly, be resolved to be saturated with the Word of God. 
The Lord said, Heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never pass away. Matthew 24:35. Many years ago, when Mark Cahill came here, he started out the, the, when he spoke on Sunday. He had, was here for the weekend. When he spoke on Sunday, he had a list of statements that he read, and he wanted us to tell him if they were true or false. And some of them were clearly not true, but others were more subtle. And thankfully, all of them, we got all of them right. If we are able to, if we want to be able to respond to our culture today, we need to know the Word of God. We have to be so saturated with it that it overflows from us. When the Lord was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, every time, each temptation, he responded from the Word of God. From the Word of God. Second Timothy 3.16 says this, All scripture is given for doctrine. Doctrine tells us what is right. All scripture is given for reproof. Reproof tells us what is not right. All scripture is given for correction. Correction tells us how to get it right. And all scripture is given for instruction. It tells us how to stay right. So that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that's what we ask to do. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, We are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he had foreordained for us, determined beforehand for us. So let me ask you this. How is your knowledge of God's Word? We were watching a little bit of the news this morning, and there's a commercial that comes on, and it came on this morning, actually. It's the uh, commercial for the, the card or the little device called Cardia Mobile. You know, the one where you put your thumbs in and you can get an EKG readout, and it gives you six common cardiac arrhythmias. And that guy who goes in that truck all around, he stops people. He says, how's your heart today? And when they tell him, good, he says, how do you know? And then he promotes the uh, device. How's your knowledge of God's word today? How do you know? Parents, let me ask you this. If, some, if your child comes to you and says, what's wrong with transgenderism? Can you answer that from the Bible? If they come to you and ask you, what's wrong with homosexuality? Can you answer that from the Bible? If they ask you, do we have to have a father and mother in a home? Can you show them where God ordained that? Or what God's pattern is? How's your knowledge of Scripture? Or are you still on that rocking chair, kind of back and forth, thinking you walk, you walk miles because your phone tells you so? Is your knowledge of the Word today better than it was last year? If not, why not? Are you doing something about it? I can tell you that reading the one-year Bible has been a real blessing to me for this. It's over 20 years now. My only regret is I didn't start it 40 years ago. I did not. The Word of God is precious. We have the freedom to read it. We have all kinds of versions of it. We have print versions. We have online versions. We have you know, resources online that you can listen to. Are you taking advantage of it? Are you taking advantage of it? Are you growing in the Lord? How do you know? Secondly, be resolved to be gospel-driven in our life and witness. Be resolved to be gospel-driven in our life and witness. I quoted John 14, verse 6 earlier. 
Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And in the Great Commission at the end of the Gospels of Mark and Matthew, he gave this command to go into the world and preach the Gospel. Have we lost that sense of urgency of preaching the Gospel? You know, recently a Christian leader who was part of a missions organization that took the Gospel globally for decades but recently the leadership has been taken over by so-called progressive Christians. And he was at their annual conference and he lamented, you would have thought that you were at a conference on social justice. Gone was an urgency to get the gospel to all people. Gone was that urgency. Some of today's millennials feeling as though they don't feel fit in with evangelicals, even evangelicals linked to conservative values have instead devoted themselves to social justice causes. And sadly, many have abandoned the doctrine of personal repentance. According to the Barna Group, many Christian millennials are unsure about the actual practice of evangelism. For about 47% agree that it is at least somewhat wrong to share one's personal beliefs with others of a different faith with the hope that one day they will share the same faith. It's at least somewhat wrong. How will they hear if they have not been told? If we are not willing to tell. At the uh, one of the prayer breakfasts in Congress recently, Emmanuel Cleaver, who was one of the African-American representatives, his prayer was dedicated to the one God, Jesus, Brahman, and Allah. And he ended the prayer, Amen and a woman. The word amen has nothing to do with masculine or feminine, but in the so-called progressive view, amen is, is men, is masculine, so you have to have amen and a woman. You need to be know what's going on in our society. You really need to be resolved to be gospel-driven. Today, to believe that Christ is the only way is somehow regarded as bigoted. And belief in hell is viewed as a regression to medieval notions of primitive and cruel judgmentalism. But God is not done with us. How refreshing it was to see the Holy Spirit working mightily on college campuses earlier this year, starting in Asbury and spreading to other college campuses. What a blessing. God is not done with us. But the gospel comes not only in words, but in the lives of authentic, caring Christians who are willing to take the gospel and willing to sacrifice, they're all for others. It's easy for the gospel to be lost in a social justice world. But let's remember this, that gospel is not what we can do for Jesus, whether it's social justice issues or otherwise. The gospel is not what we can do for Jesus, but what Jesus has done for us. The gospel is what Jesus has done for us. He gave his son to die for us. There is no salvation for there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Acts 4, verse 12, Peter's second message after Pentecost. The late brother Phil Del Rey used to say this, there are only two seasons we have to share the gospel, in season and out of season. In other words, always. Let's be resolved to share the gospel and live it without shame no matter the cost. 
Thirdly, be resolved that you will not bow down to the current culture or what it entails, because that, that might have been what happened to uh, the church at Sardis. Matthew 5, verse 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. John 17, verse 17, Jesus prays, Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. You know, there are many New Testament passages that speak to our temptation to exchange purity for the fulfillment of our passions. Second Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth. I've talked about this idea that um, shame came from Satan, and therefore we don't have to be ashamed of anything. Biblically, shame is not taken away by discarding it but by acknowledging the wonder of God's gracious forgiveness and cleansing to all those who repent and come to Him. Self-healing can never accomplish what God can. How did Jesus handle the sexually broken in Luke 7 to the prostitute standing in front of the self-righteous Pharisees? He said this, Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven, your faith has saved you, go in peace. When we come to him in repentance, he can wipe your slate clean. He doesn't just cover your sins, he removes it as far as the east is from the west. So far has God removed our sins from us. We must hold fast to biblical doctrine, but we must hold it with love and compassion and respect for all people no matter who they are or what they've done. And that's hard to do. I would admit that's hard to do. But that's what we ask to do. Lastly, be resolved to love the Lord passionately and to suffer. Be prepared to suffer for his sake. John 14, verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 13, 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. In John, 1 John 2, 15, John writes this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. Do not love the world or things in the world. You know, there are many ways we can love the world. And you could spend a whole hour on that. And let me pick this one. In our present world, maybe this can be best represented by our obsession with technology. Technology can be wonderful. We saw a good example of this in the recent COVID epidemic, where we had virtual or hybrid services. And we continue to have that. And the gospel can go out in that manner to even places where there is open hostility to it. But there is a dark side to technology. All of us can easily be lured into things that are antithetical to Christianity. Often there's no filter on what we watch on our phones or our laptops or social media. And in social media, even though people are constantly connected to one another, leaves our young people more lonely and unable to really connect in person anymore. What used to be called biblical separation is rarely taught or applied today. We must, let me read this, we must see our calling as more than just keeping ourselves undefiled by the world, but rather developing a love for Christ that is greater than our love for sin. Let me say that again. We must see our calling as more than just keeping ourselves undefiled by the world, but rather developing a love for Christ that is greater than our love for sin. And we must have the courage both to engage the culture and stand against it. And that is difficult. I do believe, I do believe as evangelical, true evangelical Christians, not those heresies we read in the beginning. 
we are going to come under increasing ridicule, discrimination, and persecution. There may come a time where we cannot no longer live like this, uh, meet like this. There may come a time when parents who teach their children Christian values are going to be accused of child abuse and the state can come in and take your children. Don't think that's too far-fetched. But if and when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Our confidence comes not in what's happening around us. Our confidence comes from God. God is. God will judge. God will deliver. But as believers, maybe we resolved to strengthen the things which remain. May we be students of God's Word, just like the Bereans were, examining God's Word, growing in the Word, growing to apply the Word and sharing the Gospel in the places that God takes us to. Be resolved not to bow down to the culture and not to be fooled or absorbed by it. And be resolved to love the Lord passionately, more than we love sin, and be prepared to suffer. I started out with the image of 9-11. Something happens to you today. Where will you be? Where will you be? If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, you can answer that with confidence. But if you haven't, you don't know what this afternoon brings. Scripture says, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. I urge you, if you've heard the gospel before and have put it off for another week, put it off for another week, come to the Lord today and He can, He will save you and you have a future for all eternity. We sang earlier, now I have a hope that will surely endure after the passing of time. I have a future in heaven for sure. There in those mansions sublime. And it's because of that wonderful day when as a sinner I came, riches eternal and blessings supernal. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. There's rejoicing in heaven when even one soul comes to him. I pray this is the day that you might make that commitment if you haven't. And if you have, be resolved to serve the Lord well and to bring honor and glory to His name. Let's close in prayer. Father, we just thank You for that as we look around us, it's, it really is depressing, Lord. And just uh, we have a tendency as human beings to give in to despair, but we thank You that You are on the throne. You always are on the throne. And that You are in control, that You will judge and that You will deliver us. And this is not our home, Lord. We're looking forward to being with you. We have a living hope that we will be with you. So if there's anyone here who hasn't surrendered their life to Christ, I pray that, that today would be the day that they would do that, that you would work in their hearts, that the Holy Spirit would draw them to you. The Apostle Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation. Help us not to be ashamed of the gospel, but to be willing to boldly proclaim it in our lives, our words, and our actions as we go about in the places you have us in. Be with us now as we go from here. Dismiss us with your blessing. We just ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.